Welcome to Request for Commits, a podcast that explores different perspectives in open source sustainability. On this show, we talk to people about the human side of code. We cover everything from community and governance to businesses and licensing. If you've ever wondered how open source projects get started, survive, die, or flourish, then you're going to love this show. I'm Nadia Ekbal. And I'm Michael Rogers. On today's show, Michael and I talk with Rod Bag, Chief Node Officer at NodeSource. Rod has worked across the Node.js ecosystem, including in the database community and creating several key Node School workshops. He serves as a technical steering committee chair for Node.js, as well as on the Node.js Foundation Board. Our focus on today's episode with Rod was around liberal contribution policies. We talked about Rod's early experiments with liberalized commit access, the underlying mechanics of liberal contribution management, and how to level up casual contributors. We also talked about how projects transition into a liberal contribution mindset and whether there's a place for BDFLs in the future of project governance. So Rod, you once said that the history of open source is divided into eras based on the different tools we've used, um, which I think is a great way to start this episode. Um, all three of us have written and spoken about how there's this new era of open source where there are a lot more casual contributions, um, kind of like this GitHub era. So I'm curious just to start out um, what that transition was like for you um, as you've been involved in open source. How did you observe that sort of transition happening? I, I guess um, I guess I observed that simply by my involvement, because um, while I've been um, doing the software thing for a while now, um, my involvement hasn't really been um, significant until this new era of GitHub uh, and Git. Um, the the friction involved in some of the earlier eras um, really prevented me from embracing it properly. Um, so, I, I, yeah, and I'm, I'm not actually I can't tell you when it was that I really started to jump in, you know, headfirst into open source and, and or why that change happened. Um, but I, I'm. I think it was much more um, when open source became easier to be involved in community. So, um, you know, I, I I don't I don't live in a large city. Um, I don't have a, a a community of nerds around me that I can just go out and hang out with. Um, you know, I don't have local meetups. Um, so for me, online community is is my is my nerd community. It's, my, it's where my people are. So. Um, for me, when that became easy, uh, that's when I really threw myself at um, open source. And so while I have contributions to open source going going back a fair way, um, particularly in you know the, the kinds of things that people always do, like, like it, submitting bug reports, like I was doing that for, for a long time. But um, my, you know, if, if you were to do a commit graph of my involvement in open source, it really started. Um, to, to properly pick up during the this recent era that we're in with GitHub and, and Git. Did you ever have a point where you realized that that was different from maybe open source projects in the past or that not all projects were like the ones you were involved with? No, um, it's, it's, not until, um, it's not until really uh, recently when I've started to uh, speak about these things and actually think more about open source governance that uh, that I've really had to think about the, the difference there. Um, and I wasn't early on with the, the GitHub thing. You know, my, if, um, I, don't, I, I don't know if, you, if, the, number, if the IDs are um, easy to find on, on GitHub. I think they are through the API, but my ID is not particularly low. You know, I didn't, have a, uh, I didn't jump in early and see this thing was this radical new thing that we're getting involved in. Um, mm. And it's, it's, it's you know... Um, I, I, di I didn't recognize that at the time. And so I was, I was a slow adopter 
And um, it wasn't until recently that I've um, looked back and seen it as something that um, really demarcates the, uh, the this new open source versus the old. Um, but the dividing line is re- it's really quite stark when you think about um, what the, what it means for open source. Um, so it's it's sort of surprising that it, it crept up on a lot of us and um, just sort of happened. But uh, I think for people that have been deeply involved, particularly um, people that have been involved in uh, in Apache projects, um, it's probably been obvious because it's been a little bit more painful um, Mm -hmm. to have this new thing come along that is really replacing the old and presenting challenges because, you know, people don't want to get involved if it's not on GitHub. They don't want to have to, you know, use SVN or whatever other old tools people want to use. So it's Mm -hmm. been a bit more painful for them, a bit more obvious, but for those of us that have um, sort of lurked and only become involved more recently, it's, it's um, I, I, yeah, it's not, it's not as obvious. I, I find this really interesting because usually like this, uh, this just complete lack of wanting to jump through hoops to contribute is associated with people that have like, you know, not as low level of a technical background. Um, but you actually have a, a very like low level background and have written some really low level stuff in the node community, like, like the native abstraction layer and stuff like that. Um, but I've, I've like seen you not get involved even in GitHub projects where it was just like too annoying to try to contribute. Um, so <laughs> I don't know what, do you like associate that with anything or did like, have you really thought about it to identify like what it is? I think there's uh, there's a there's a self confidence thing there. Um, so even though you might identify me as somebody that's comfortable with low level things, um, my own personal self confidence with my technical abilities um, it took took a long time to grow. Um, and part of that was because I wasn't involved as heavily in communities online and um, and and didn't have large peer groups. So um, wasn't able to properly measure my um, my technical abilities, um, and that's one of the nice things about the communities. Even though um, you know measuring your skills against others might sound uncomfortable, it actually it's a confidence boosting measure when you are able to clearly identify um, where you fit in that hierarchy, because that gives you the ability to find an entry point into something. But if you don't know that, if if you if you if you don't know where you fit and where and what you have to offer. Um, then it's going to provide much more uncertainty about how you can even get involved or if you should get involved. Yeah, I think that the biggest confidence boost isn't, you know, the first contribution or the first bug report or even the first push. It's like the first time that you help somebody else get their commit in or you you get to give somebody else advice uh, and improve their work. Like it's this huge confidence boost to go like, oh, I'm actually at a point now where like I can help other people. I'm not just a person being helped. Yeah, and that's true. Um, that's very true. And and. Along with that, also the um, confidence boosts can come with um, just releasing your own code, and it's, sometimes that can be scary for people that aren't um, that, that are doing open source for the first time and aren't already involved in existing projects. Um, releasing your own code and saying, "Here I am. Here's my here's what I have to offer to the world. Judge me by it." It's really scary, um, but doing that and finding out that um, you know the sky doesn't fall. People are not going to come and yell at you or laugh at you or anything like that, and they might actually find value in your project. Um, that that can be the confidence boost that people need. And um, we we those of us that have been involved in open source now for a while, like this, I guess I'm addressing this to people who are um, around the edges now or considering getting involved. Um, we're used to seeing this spectrum of quality um, from 
pretty raw to very mature and um, and high level. And it's not like um, you you don't. I guess you just accept that there is this level, and um, some projects will um, need a little bit of a hand to level up, and other projects already have that, and because of the technical ability of the, of the people involved, and um, that doesn't mean that you uh, reject things that are of that are on that lower end of the spectrum. It just means that those things need a bit of a hand, and so um, even if you even if you really um, don't have that deep technical skill. Um, you're st- you're not going to get laughed at or judged. Very, very. It, it, that happens occasionally, but it's actually really rare. Um, it's really rare that somebody's project gets pointed out and laughed at. Um, you, it might happen occasionally on Hacker News, but most of the time, um, people release their stuff and um, it, it it collects a community of some kind. Um, it, it, whether that be people of similar interest and skill level, or other people trying to. Um, just get involved and make something useful out of it. So it's it's actually not as as scary to do that first step as as you often think it is before you get involved in open source. Can you tell us a little bit about getting involved with LevelDB and then how some of these learnings um, got fed into your experiments with liberal contribution policies there? Okay, um, LevelDB. So this was um, this was one of my first. Uh, explicit experiments with um, much more liberal contribution agreements um, or governance. Um, so, I, to be honest, that, that the the level DB stuff, I started getting involved there simply because I was looking for some a new project to do that would let me do some interesting work on the Node um, add-on area. So C plus plus add-ons. I wanted to dive into that and learn a bit about that area and was looking for something to do. And um, that just seemed like an interesting area to play with. And there was an existing project out there that did this. And um, uh, like a good open source person, I thought there's no reason not to reinvent the wheel. So I reinvented the wheel and um, and and dove in and, and wrote this thing. And um, early on in that um, process of exploration, I was trying to make something that felt a lot more node-like than what already existed um, for level DB. So I wanted to make something that was um, that was much more natural. And when you used it, it felt like a node thing. Um, and so while I had, um, I, I think I started off in the right way there. I actually had some of the the best ideas come from outside. So I, I opened it up pretty early and I started throwing around these ideas. Um, in, in on GitHub and in IRC as well, um, and managed to pick up some ideas from from some people who um, were able to um, really make it feel much more node like. And one of those people was actually Max Ogden, um, and uh, many people, um, in fact, most people around the node ecosystem probably know Max. Um, Michael, you know him particularly well, but um, he he actually gave me some really good ideas around. Um, I think it was str- some streaming stuff that I was tinkering with. Um, but he, you know, gave a couple of suggestions that really clicked, and I thought, yeah, that's um, that's that's a great idea. That really feels node-like, and uh, and went with with a couple of the suggestions that he he had, and that process of getting other people involved in the design stage, and then um, the early, the very early contribution stage, where there were some people that were really interested in making a tool here that um, felt much more node-like. Um, that process of actually saying, um, 
these people actually have really valuable opinions from the get-go, from actually building this thing. Um, and they, they want to get involved, um, but also they are, they are already involved and they already own a lot of the ideas here. Um, what right do I have to, you know, claim full ownership of this stuff? Because, um, so, you know, a lot of the code and a lot of the ideas are not even mine. It was a small project, um, pretty small API surface area, and um, not all of it came out of my head. So I just didn't feel I had the right to fully own this thing. And so the idea of liberal contribution, um, liberal governance, sorry, what was it called at that stage? Open open source, right? Yeah, open open source. The, the idea, this idea that um, I don't, I shouldn't um, claim sole ownership of this thing. And um, and when you give contributions, you're actually giving them to me f- to claim ownership of. That that just didn't it just didn't fit. So um, I decided to go ahead and make this um, this open open source thing um, around level level DB. Um, at the time, there's the level up project, and now um, that's split up into two projects, and then this ecosystem um, appeared around those projects um, and they all pretty much adopted the same sort of contribution style where the the idea is that um, if you are showing up with something to add um, and that's not a trivial thing. So not, so not just don't just give me a, um, a a typo fix, actually give me something that is material. If you're showing up with something to something meaningful to add, then uh, you should have a seat at the table because this thing is obviously valuable to you um, and you're you're putting some time and effort, which is valuable, into this thing so um, you can share ownership in, in that. And for that that style, the open open source style, as it's evolved in the, the, level, the level up ecosystem, um, it's very much about um, equal sharing. So you get ownership of um, the project, the whole project. You get to... Um, have an equal vote. The uh, as as the original person that started it, you get um, your name on the, um, you know, the overall copyright thing. Um, it says this is copyright and owned by the contributors who are listed. Um, you basically become an, an equal with the other people, and um, and that that has persisted. It's worked really well, um, and it's something that I've I, I generally adopt now for all my open source projects um, because. The people that show up that want to contribute and do the work obviously have a vested interest in the project. It's it's meaningful for them. Um, you know, there's no no good reason to hold it um, tightly most of the time. There, there might be some. There's obviously some situations where that does make sense, but um, a lot of the time it's you know you're putting it out there anyway. Uh, you're finding a meaning a community of people that it's uh, it it it, it um, has value to. Um, so why shouldn't you share that? So, so beyond just the, these initial principles, what were some of the early iterations that you did to that policy? Um, so, I mean, I, I can't imagine that it was super fleshed out right away. Um, there, there had to have been some additions or changes that you made along the way. Um, look, to be honest, um, what you find, if you go to the, the, the level up uh, repo and look at the contributing file, that actually hasn't changed very much since the original version. Um, and um, it's it's not because though that it's perfect. It's simply because no one's thought to update it, um, mm-hmm. or no one's actually like I. I haven't gone back, or anyone else hasn't gone back and said, "Well, these things are, don't make that much sense." But if you look at it, there's a, there's a bunch of things in there that that actually don't make as much sense now that we've iterated on the this idea. Um, 
And uh, I'll, I'll just quickly just walk through the, we've got these five rules. Um, so the first rule is no force pushes or modifying the history in any way. Um, that in practice, um, you know, that, 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 that idea suggests that, um, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't write over other people's stuff and you shouldn't mess with the Git history. It's, it's just a good idea. Um, but in practice, uh, force pushing is sometimes necessary. Um, but the, the idea there is simply that, um, uh, you, you don't have the right to mess with, uh, other people's history. You only do that if the tools make it necessary because you've, you know, you're doing some weird rebasing or whatever. Um, so that rule is sort of in practice is quite soft. Um, and people will do what needs to be done with the tools, uh, you know, as, as these needs come up. So I'm not sure I'd codify that in the same way these days. Um, uh, the second rule is non-master branches ought to be used for ongoing work. Uh, again, you know, this is just like a, whatever works for the project and the people involved. Um, the idea behind it was that the master branch was supposed to represent the, the sort of the pinnacle of, of the active work, the stuff that has been really accepted. And that, that's in practice, that, that is how it works. But how that plays out, how you get to that is really a matter for the people involved. Sometimes people, um, you know, are quite comfortable making, doing a fork and submitting from their own fork. Um, I had this idea originally that you wouldn't need to fork the projects because you actually have full rights to the project. You don't need to make a fork and then pull requests from your own fork. Um, in fact, early on, I, was, I, I actually started encouraging people, look, you don't need to do that. Come and make a branch in this project. Um, and while I still like that idea, uh, in practice, it, it, it really depends on the individual and how the mechanics of the project. So in the node project, for example, we, we don't do very much in the main project um, at all. We tend to do it from our own forks. Um, so that's, that's, again, a bit, a bit uh, soft in practice. Uh, the third one is uh, external API changes and significant modifications ought to be subject to an internal pull request to solicit feedback from other con contributors. In practice, the way that I think it actually should be done, and that, that rule should actually be changed, um, that every change should be done by a pull request. Um, early on, it was like, okay, if you're fixing grammar uh, or you know, some minor little thing, then sure, just commit it. Um, but in the, for the sake of visibility, I would change that and say everything should be done via pull request. Um, and the fourth one is, is similar. Uh, internal pull requests to solicit, solicit feedback are encouraged for any non-trivial contribution, but it's left to the discretion of the contributor. It's, that's pretty much the same thing. Um, and the last one is contributors should adhere to the prevailing code style of the project. I don't know if that actually needs to be said because that's just how we do open source. That was just a way that for, I, the reason I put that in there is because I, I, I sometimes adopt some quirky code style things. And, you know, the last thing I want is people showing up and saying, um, we should change this and put semicolons or you know, change the spacing, just get over it and accept whatever the code style is of the project you're contributing to. Um, I don't know if that needs to be said in these rules. So, Mostly these rules have sort of become really flexible and there's just more of a, um, a general idea of openness and a mechanics to contributing that make that openness um, work well. So, yeah, in terms of iterations, I, I, um, I actually haven't had enough time to go back and really pin down um, the best mechanics that work for the different kinds of projects. Mostly they just evolve within those little communities and it just works as it works.
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so we're going to take a quick short break. Uh, and then when we come back, we're going to really dig into the meat of liberal contribution policies and, and what this does for casual contributions. Hey, everyone. Adam Stokowiak here, editor-in-chief of Changelog. And if you're looking to hire the best freelance talent out there, head to toptal.com. That's T-O-P-T-A-L.com. Hire the top 3% of freelance talent out there the world's best developers and designers, white glove service, risk free trial. That means that if you're not happy, you do not pay. You can hire a developer, you can hire a designer, you can hire both. If you need to scale your team, this is the place for you. To get started, head to toptal.com. That's T O P T A L.com. Tell them Adam from the Cheese Log sent you. They'll take great care of you. If you'd like a more personal introduction, Email me, adam at changelog.com. And we're back with Rod Vag. Um, so, Rod, take me through um, some of these mechanics of, of liberal contribution policies. Um, so, you know, you talked a little bit about what went into the level to be specific policies. Um, what would you say is just kind of the overarching philosophy of how these are constructed and how that differs from the more traditional approach to contribution policies and governance? So there's a, there's a couple of things to look at. The, the first one is the, the mechanics of collaboration. Um, and so how do, you, how do you do this in a way that um, involves the, the whole group of people that have the ability to make decisions? Um, so all of your, all of your um, contributors that are, um, you know, th- these equals at the seat of the table. So um, GitHub presents the obvious answer to that, which is pull requests. Um, so pull requests for everything. Um, and that means um, every time you want to make a change, you do it as a pull request, which is the invitation for discussion. Um, if... Uh, if something doesn't garner discussion, then you take it as an implicit okay. If nobody steps up and says, "I don't like this," or "I need," hang on, let's let's talk about these things. Um, then then you've got the go ahead. You don't need to necessarily um, chase sign up from other people. In practice, people do, and in some of the more formal settings, that that's actually written in, like in the, in the Node project, that's written in. But uh, most of the time. Um, then these small projects where you you have only you know a, a small number of people that are um, actively concentrating on the project and they need to put in time um, a, a pull request that doesn't garner discussion um, in, it has an implicit yes. See that's that's a really big departure from traditional policies, right? Like like traditionally in open source, like I, I send if I send a change to a project, it's my responsibility to convince them that it should go in, not the other way around, right? Right. Yeah. This is where the, the, the initial gating process comes in. Um, so if you send a pull request to one of these liberal policy, liberal projects, um, and you are not one of the, the core contributors to it, um, then you have to go that, through that process of convincing that that change is good. Um, and that, that can mean a whole lot of things. And that, that actually is the onboarding process most of the time. So um, that can be things like going through, looking at your code style. Hang on, you know, you, you're not con- you're not actually conforming to the code style of the project. Just you know, do the basics here. Um, 
And there's all these, these hurdles that you go through, which are quite normal in open source projects. You know, get this thing right, fit, fit into the project, make sure that the API makes sense. All of those things that you normally go through with a pull request is actually treated as the onboarding process. And if you manage to get over that, that, that first hump, um, then, you know, you're in. Uh, you've done the, the initial work and you can be at the table now um, doing that process with other people. And what's more, you can actually be involved in changing some of those things that you had to, to go through. So if, if you really hate the code style, like if there's something wrong with it, then you're perfectly um, within your rights to propose that it be changed. You've just got to convince the other people that um, may stand up and say, no, I don't, I don't think you should change that. Um, so um, getting through that initial gate is the important bit. But once you're through, then um, then you've proven yourself as somebody that has um, that places enough value in this thing and is willing to give your valuable time and effort to. Um, so you're you know you, you have rights to to change it as you as you think it needs to be changed. Um, but in in practice, um, people know that radical changes uh, are difficult and may get and will likely be raise a discussion or significant objections. So. Um, every change, um, if it doesn't if it doesn't get discussion, that usually means it's pretty trivial and, and nobody cares enough about it. Um, so just go ahead. Um, you do need to leave time for discussion. So in, if I was to rewrite the policy in, in general for open source, I would definitely build in something about that time period because you do need to take into account that um, for a start, the, the the global nature of open source. You can't assume that everyone's within your time zone. Um, the also the the different ways that people do open source. Some people do it. Uh, in their work time because it's part of their work and they're using projects for their work. Other people do it on the weekends. Um, so you do need to make sure that you leave enough time for these pull requests that all of the people involved in the project have a chance to jump in if they're, if they're going to. So it's, it, and, and that, that this becomes part of the culture. It's not fair to create a pull request and merge it you know, the same day or even the next day usually. Um, it's not fair on the other people in the project and it's usually frowned upon. So. Um, they do need to be left open for enough time to get a gun discussion. And then when discussion does happen, um, consensus seeking really is at the heart of the process. And that really does need to be written into any uh, liberal contribution policy. Consensus seeking is, is, is what happens to get to agreement. And consensus seeking doesn't necessarily mean that you have to reach consensus. It just means you have to address enough of the concerns that you don't have anyone saying, no, this can't go in. Um, so you don't have to re reach consensus that something is good, but you have to reach enough consensus that nobody's going to nobody's going to put their foot down. So the the gating for um, for something getting in is really that um, somebody strong willing to strongly enough assert that this thing shouldn't get in. Um, no, if somebody gives a no, then that's that's a no, and it could just be one person um, amongst the group. Yeah, yeah. There's a big difference between peer consensus and consensus seeking, right? So with consensus yeah. seeking, the goal is that everybody agrees that this should go in. Um, but if one person objects, in peer consensus, they would basically get a veto. In consensus seeking, um, they have to convince everybody else that no, this should not go in because inevitably you can go to a vote if you need to. Um, in practice, you never end up using votes because if somebody objects but they don't want to take the time to convince everybody else, they just give up action, right? Yeah, and it depends on how strongly they feel. Um, yeah. And, and, and that's actually, that's an interesting thing because um, the, the strength of somebody's feelings about, you know, technical changes 
um, actually reflects more than just feelings. It's actually uh, it re- it's a technical opinion, and it and it usually um, carries along with it some um, technical merit. So that's why these things are important to pay attention to, even if people don't express them very well, because you know nerds are often not that great at expressing themselves um, um, beyond pure technical things, and sometimes not even with technical things. So just that process of allowing people to say no uh, is important, um, and and then. What it what it means is that you have to drop into a discussion mode, uh, which can be uncomfortable for people, and it actually can be intimidating for outsiders as well. That's something in practice that we found um, that that it becomes occasionally discussion heavy, um, and while that is part of community and it actually one, is one of the valuable parts of uh, I, I think valuable parts of the existing communities that develop, uh, it can be intimidating for people coming from the outside. Um, so it's just, that's just something to keep on top of. Um, so that's the, the contribution thing that with pull requests, that's, um, the important part of that. The, the other thing to note is that the way I, the way I often describe these things is we're trying to make open source more like a wiki. So more like we think of, of Wikipedia, trying to turn, uh, open source projects into their own little mini Wikipedia is, is the goal here that, um, everyone has these valuable contributions and they may be tiny, uh, or they may be significant. Um, and there's no good reason to um, really be so protective about these things because we often pretend that every change uh, involves some huge technical, you know, it, it needs to go through these technical hurdles when often it's, it, it really doesn't. It's, you know, it's, if somebody's trying to fix something small, it's as simple as that. They're trying to fix something small. It's not they're trying to you know, massively change the architecture of something. Um, and, and people come along. If you look at, at pull requests ac- across almost any open source project, the kinds of things that people from the outside are waiting to get in, there are these small things that um, will make a huge difference to them and very little difference to other people who haven't encountered the same problem um, or haven't wanted the same kind of functionality from the project. Um, and it's not, it's not usually going to make a radical difference to the project itself. So that's, that's like how Wikipedia evolves. That's how articles on Wikipedia evolve. Um, usually most of the changes are not these big architectural changes. They are minor. Um, so moving open source projects closer to a wiki is one of the goals here. Um, but the challenge that code presents that um, you don't get in the same way with um, wiki articles is that um, you want to occasionally make releases and these releases have to represent a, um, a conception of quality at a point in time. Um, and so while we go to a Wikipedia page and we accept that it may contain errors, um, because somebody edited five minutes ago and they, you know, made some trolling comment in there and it's very funny, haha. You don't, you don't want that in your, um, code releases. You don't want to make a release of a library and it's got somebody's little trolling comment in there or it's got a, a silly API that somebody's messing with just because they um, had the ability to do so. So we do still need this process of being able to make um, releases that we agree are of quality and, and I represent the project at a point in time. Um, so we can't quite act just like Wikipedia. We do have to have a process that allows us to um, assert quality at, at these snapshot points. So that's where the idea of um, having a master branch or a, a branch that is sacred is important. Um, so this branch represents a, a place where we only put things that we, um, uh, that we all agree is good 
um, and then having some way of making releases off that. And often that will involve an individual or a group of individuals um, that are a subset of the project um, that go through that process. So there is a difference in, um, in release mechanics um, over just contribution mechanics, which is, is worth thinking about when you dive into this, this thing. Um, but at the same time, you shouldn't let that hold you up from um, being more liberal with accepting contributions because um, there's releases and then there's what's on Git on your, in your Git repository. Um, what's in your Git repository does not necessarily, uh, is, is rarely used by users in, in production or even in development. What they use is your releases. So try not to get too hung up in what's in your repository. Uh, it's the releases that matter to, to end users. So try and separate those two things a bit. So that's, um, that's my thoughts on mechanics for now. Let's get a little bit into the casual contributions that you started to touch upon. Um, I think there's a perception that casual contributions are really small things and nothing, you know, nothing really substantial and we can't really rely on them for anything useful. Um, what types of contributions do you see coming from casual contributors versus more regular contributors? And where do you think they can fill in a, a strong role? I don't make as much differentiation um, between casual contributors and, and whatever the opposite of that is, because I, I don't think you can actually know when somebody is a ca casual contributor and when they're not. Um, something might be small to start with, but that might be somebody testing the waters. Um, so they might be trying to um, you know, just change a tiny thing that's annoying for them. Um, but if you, uh, if you give them the right signals that, um, that everything's okay, you're not, you know, we're not going to jump down your throat every time you try and make a tiny change here. We're actually going to embrace you. Um, you can actually turn those people um, very readily into um, more than casual contributors. Um, so I, I don't think that distinction is actually that helpful unless you have a uh, unless you are able to measure it over time. So if you look back in the history of a project, um, you know, look over the past six months, then you might be able to actually see who were the casual contributors. But at the time that it's happening, I'm not sure you can say who who are the people that are, that you could label casual because very often those people, um, when given enough in, given the right signals. Um, can turn into something a lot more. So I've seen people come and show up with documentation fixes, even minor ones. And, and you give them the right signals that, um, you know, we're open for business, we're open for um, contributions, um, and they level up really quickly. In fact, uh, one of the most interesting, interesting things about this kind of contribution policy is you can actually take people with, with um, low level of technical skill, and you can level up their skill through the process. So um, I've seen people come in and they, you know, they, they say things like, oh, I, I don't really know, understand, you know, well, C++ or this fancy stuff you're doing in here. Um, so I'll, just contributing to documentation is, is, is good enough for me. Um, and they, but they may actually contribute enough documentation to get over that initial hurdle of um, non-trivial changes. And they may, may become one of the, um, the core contributors of it, even though they, they're asserting they don't have the technical skill. But the fact that they recognize that is, is important. And when you put them at the same level as everyone else, it actually encourages them to level up. Um, so I've seen people go from um, saying that they don't have the technical skill to being a primary maintainer of a project that is very technical um, just by giving them the permission and the, um, you know, that blessing to say, you, um, you're one of the team, you're equals, you're equals with us, and you have the responsibility to help 
you know, foster this, this community and this project. And just simply giving that responsibility um, means people level up. And it's, it's really surprising how that works um, in practice. When you, when you give them the uh, responsibility, it's responsibility that does it. When you give people responsibility over uh, a project, then it, it creates in them something that makes them step up to the plate. And they're not just somebody out from the outside tinkering and throwing little changes at you and sniping. And, you know, they're actually somebody that takes it on board personally. Um, and that, that does some really surprising things. So I, I really like this outlook of, you know, well, you don't know if they're casual or not, right? Um, but, you know, do, do you ever experience a tension between people that are already working on the project a lot and the kinds of policies that are going to help them out and favor them versus, you know, what's going to be more applicable to people that first show up? I, I think the tension comes mostly in terms of culture. Uh, and that's something that you do have to be very tuned into. Uh, how do you treat people coming in from the outside? It, it, it is helpful, the fact that everyone coming in, everyone who's part of that, that core group has already gone through that process. So usually they are tuned into that. Uh, and it actually, it makes people really uh, receptive to outsiders because they know they were once in exactly the same place uh, and they were helped out by the same community and they become another helper. So most of the time, um, it's actually really positive. Um, but you do have to be careful that you... Um, that that culture doesn't start to um, turn inward too much um, and start to become snobbish to people with different opinions. Because the fact about open source projects is that they, if they don't evolve with the people that use them, then people will stop using them. So if they're not meaningful to people over the, over the long run, then they become irrelevant. And when we, we can, you can, I mean, it's not, I don't even need to give examples here because this is the history of open source. Um, and people move on as well. So, and, and new people show up. And those new people often bring new ideas and new preferences. And if you don't allow a project to start to accept some of those new things, um, then you can become just as stale um, as a classic open source project. Um, so being attuned to that policy, that, that, that culture of openness and making sure that not just the mechanics, but the actual culture, the way that people, um, work together is, remains open, I think is really important. Um, and, and it's hard to do as well. It's not something that, that you can as easily build into something that is, goes over the long run. Um, and I, I've seen this in a couple of projects where, um, it's a small group, um, and you end up with a. Um, a, a bit of an echo chamber about how something should be um, and other people come in from outside with new ideas, alternative views, and they uh, have a hard time really getting into that echo chamber. Um, and I think that, that that's, that's still the same problem that open source has had for a long time. Um, it can be solved, but it's a matter of actually being uh, attuned to it and watching for it and, um, and making sure that you keep on um, reminding each other that, uh, hey, new people value this as much as we do. And in fact, um, most, a lot of the time, new people may value it more than we do because we might be moving on to other things and we might be hanging around here because it's a great community. But in terms of use of the project, um, other people out there may be using it more than we are and may, have it in, may, may actually place more value in the project. So allowing them to come in to sh and to shape it um, is 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 not only worthwhile, but um, is vital for the future of the project. 
You said something interesting there, right? Which is that it's about culture. And when everybody's gone through the process, it, you naturally have a culture that is, you know, really welcoming and open to, to newcomers if they if they started out on that kind of long tail of contributions. Um, but what about projects that, you know, have an established culture and an established policy? Um, I mean, you and I were both involved in, in the reforming of the, the Node.js project, which very much had like a very old style contribution policy. Um, and there were, a, you know, not, not just one person, but several people that were very skeptical of, of, you know, liberalized contribution agreements. So I was wondering if you could kind of speak to, you know, some of the standard arguments against liberal contribution policies and, and you know, what your response is when, and what other people's response should be if they're trying to move a project in a new direction or establish a newer culture. Uh, so I, I think that these standard arguments are actually they're very familiar even outside of open source and software. Um, so my wife is a teacher, and um, and I, and I and I during the during the rise of Wikipedia, I got to hear all of the arguments that came from um, d- typically librarians actually, but um, those educators that um, were used to having walled gardens around knowledge. Um, not that my not, not not that my wife had problems with Wikipedia or anything, but I got to hear it being being attached to that sort of community of educators. Um, so those those exact same arguments that arose during you know, the rise of of Wikipedia, and that still go on today. You'll find them. You know, you you go to a school and find the librarian, and you ask them about Wikipedia. You, there's a good chance you'll get the same arguments. Um, the those same arguments apply here and it's 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 simply a fear of openness it's a fear of the masses um and the crowds uh and 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 some of it's legitimate because it's a fear of chaos and chaos is uh you know scary because for good reasons um but in practice things are not chaotic there's actually this um uh this this wisdom of the crowds um this process of this, this collective process when people get together and they get to collaborate, um, that's actually quite magical and it's not chaotic, even though it might uh, look chaotic from the outside or the, it might sound, usually it just sounds chaotic. It doesn't just look chaotic. It sounds chaotic to people. I'll give you one of those, like one of these very specific things that, that, that we had to deal with. Uh, cause I, cause I really want to know what your response is to this very simple one, because I hear it over and over again in other projects, which is that, you know, they have a project with a bunch of open pull requests and what they're really like kind of falling under is that they have a couple maintainers and they're too stressed and they have too many pull requests coming in. So liberalizing contributions is just going to make more pull requests come in and they're afraid of that maintenance overhead. Right. So what, what, what is like the, the liberal contribution policy answer to that problem? Well, for start, I mean, how good a problem is that to have that you have people lining up to contribute to your project? That's a great problem to have. So get over yourself. Um, <laughs> but the, 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 the best answer to that, I think, is in, if you look at in practice at how this actually works. Um, when you have a project that has those kinds of bottlenecks in particularly the administrative areas, because the maintainers have their head in code um, or other areas where that they think is more important, actually bringing on new people and giving them um, that sense of ownership and the sense of responsibility can actually take away a lot of those burdens. So in practice, when you, uh, and this happens almost universally, uh, you take on somebody new to a project um, and you say, right, you, uh, you own this thing and you, this is yours as much as it is mine. Um, and we're going to work on this together. Um, and you have permission to go and do all the things that a maintain does, as long as you do it in a collaborative way. 
one of the first things that most people do is go through the issues list and the pull request list and start doing some pruning or some maintaining of those things. Um, and it actually, that's, that's an obvious place where a lot of people can help in open source and they know they can help because they're doing it already often in their own projects. They can go and actually help with that interface with the community. Um, so really very often, I, like I'll have a, a project that, um, you know, I might be the only person doing it's, uh, and I, I say, like, it, it might be something trivial, but it's, uh, but I have this contribution policy where if you show up with something non-trivial, then I'll give you ownership of it. Um, somebody might show up and I give them ownership. Um, almost immediately they'll go through the issues list and start closing things or responding to things and just cleaning it up because they, you know, they, they have this, um, thing about the, um, you know, the, what the project looks and feels like. So giving them that ownership is actually great for, uh, offloading some of that administrative burden. Um, in terms of the getting a flood of people contributing, um, as I said, I think that's a great problem for open source projects to have. Um, and uh, that was not something to be afraid of with Node. It was actually something to, um, that was something that we wanted to embrace because that meant that Node was healthy and, uh, and if we couldn't unblock that, then it was going to be unhealthy. Um, but there, there is a fear there of, um, the outsider coming in with different ideas to what you already have. So you, you as an open source maintainer, as somebody who starts a project particularly, um, you have these ideas in your head about what this thing could be, where it's going. Um, and um, very often we'll hold to those ideas pretty tightly. And um, it, it's, it's a rare open source project that um, comes to life and has the um, has the idea that it's it's finished and it's ready to go. Mostly, these things come to life, and we have these ideas about where it could go. It could be, um, it, it could evolve into this particular space and solve this particular solution um, problem set, and um, you know, be this magical thing. Um, and if you if you are unable to let go of that uh, that 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 internalized vision, or if you're unable to actually communicate that in a way that people actually get on board with it, then it can be really scary because you're saying uh, these other people that don't have that don't share my inner monologue about this project, these other people are going to come in and they're going to bring their own ideas about where this thing can go. And that was one of the things we, we I think we faced with Node, and and it's probably going to be a challenge for a lot of existing projects that they have this idea that this project is on a path towards this point in time and certain people who are um, particularly people that aren't just uh, interested in the technical problem solving, but people who are thinking more architecturally and organizationally um, have this idea about what the steps to get there looks like and where it needs to go. Um, bringing in people on the outside that don't, that, that don't have that is really scary because it means that the project is not going to go is is probably not going to go in that same place unless you can do some pretty heavy um, communication and convincing work. Um, and so I think that's the problem we face with Node, and I can see that 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 same problem with some other projects that are um, uh, considering but are not quite at the at the sta um, stage of accepting um, this kind of model. It's good stuff. Um we're going to take a short break and then when we get back we'll talk about reconciling liberal contribution with the bdfl model of the past and what things might look like in the future hey everyone adam stukoviak here editor-in-chief of changelog and i want to tell you about our cloud server of choice linode.com head to linode.com rfc get an ssd server running in seconds plans start at just 10 bucks a month 
And when I say our cloud server of choice, what I mean is that all of changelog is hosted on Linode. Everything we do at changelog.com is on a Linode server. What I'd like you to do is go to linode.com slash RFC, pick a plan, pick a distro, pick a location and start your server today. Use our promo code RFC20 for a $20 credit. Linode.com slash RFC. We're back with Rob Bag, um, and we're talking about liberal contribution agreements. And so I would like to hear about um, at what point you think a project is, quote unquote, ready to take on a liberal contribution policy. Um, a lot of projects now start with a BDFL model and then they might transition later, um, but that's often how a lot of projects start. Um, so do you think this is something that projects should have from the beginning? Is it something they should save for when they're a little bit more mature? My my ideas here are very much informed by um, my involvement in community groups outside of technology um, and watching community groups that are held too tightly by a core group um, really fail to get traction and, and, and thrive. Um, and this idea that you can uh, own a, uh, run a group for your own personal interest um, is I, I find really like that it, it might that that's that's a pretty bad um, pretty raw way of saying it but often I think that's the way that the that, that groups are run that they are run for the sake of the people running them and um, that when you're when you're trying to do community um, that's just not going to work and it's kind of it's kind of um, kind of terrible the the if if you're if you have a community then that community needs to exist for itself. Um, that the it needs to be self-referential, it needs to be self-governing, it needs to be self-owning. Um, and when you're running a community group and um, you're not doing it for the, you're, you're not letting the people inside it have that sense of ownership or the the actual ownership, um, then you're in for a lot of trouble. So applying that to open source, I think, uh, just makes perfect sense. So earlier you were talking about how one of the big fears is that you know other people coming in are going to change the vision of the project. Um, and what you were just talking about there kind of backs that up, right? Like there's, there's, there's going to be this tension between the, the personal interest that I have and the shared interest of other people. And I think especially when you have a popular project that you've been the BDFL of for a while, all the people coming in asking for things just seem kind of crazy and out of scope. And the fear is that when I open this up to more shared interest, then there's going to be this big scope creep. Um, like what, what has been your experience actually opening up that sense of ownership though? Has the scope gotten kind of out of control or has it actually com contracted? Right. Okay. Yeah. I, so I guess that back to us, our previous section about the objections is the one of the big things is scope creep, and and we that's that's acute for us in in the node area because we have this idea of small core, and that's a lot of us, um, particularly that have been around node for a while, have this very much internalized um, that we we appreciate the core of node being small, so that was a particular problem for no, the node core project. But we also apply that all across the, the our ecosystem. We like having our modules small. We like having the scope small. Um, so that we can have lots of these modules pieced together and not not have these modules balloon out into these monoliths that do everything. We we want to have them to be really small and self-contained and 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 just you know be able to describe them nicely in an idea rather than having to have these huge sets of documentation that describe what all these magical things you can do with it. It's just gonna be, you know, a readme is enough. And if 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 you need more than a readme, then perhaps you're doing too much. Um 
so there, there is a fear of scope creep there. Okay, if I open up to people coming in um, from the outside, then they're going to add all this crazy stuff because they want to. Um, they want this thing to do more than it really should do. In practice, um, that comes down to culture again, and um, and also this whole consensus seeking process. Um, so, um, and and you can actually see how this works by looking at at governments in general. Um, the more the more people you add to a committee, the more people you add to a government, um, the harder it is to make decisions. Um, and so that process of um, like it's like it's like an intentional gridlock that actually is built into this uh, uh, liberal contribution uh, process where uh, it is actually it's not easy to make radical changes in fact sometimes it's impossible um, and and that's actually I to me I embrace that and I actually like that as one of the features here it's very difficult to make radical changes incremental changes usually okay um, but making radical changes is is um, is, is very difficult. Um, even you know, adding adding huge features is very difficult. Um, particularly, um, a departure from the core idea of the project can be difficult because you're having to deal with um, people that have already internalized what the project is about. So that's that onboarding process again. You're having to um, you're showing up with your changes, um, and they may be a big departure from the project and you're having to present them to the people that have already internalized what this project is about. And if it doesn't match, then you're going to you know, be gently rejected. And we see this all the time, particularly with Node Core now, because we have people showing up all the time wanting to add features um, because they think they have this idea that something belongs in Core because they're bringing their um, you know, preconceptions about what standard libraries should be from other languages, be it Python or um, Java. You know, the, the, and then they bring these arguments usually. Um, I, I can do this when I write a Java program. Why can't I do it when I just run Node? Why do I have to install this thing from NPM? Um, but you're, you're bumping up against a very established culture of, um, of, of small core and small standard library. And so you have to, you have to go through that process of accepting um, that that's just the way things are before you can even get into that group. Um, so... Yeah, I guess that's, 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 that's a roundabout way of saying a couple of things there, which is that, that the model itself is, is not very well suited to, to big evolutionary, sorry, big uh, revolutionary changes. It's much more suitable to, ev suitable to evolutionary changes, which is actually, in, I, I think, is in the interest of users because um, software projects that do revolutionary changes that might change radically between version one and two um, rarely survive that transition. Um, and I've done that myself. I've done. I've taken a project which was going really well, and I thought, okay, well, uh, I don't like the way it is internally. I'm going to rewrite it all and um, and, and make a version two that is so much better. Uh, to find out that no one cares about your version two and it doesn't suit their needs, <laughs> and it was all in your head, um, that happens all the time with open source, and that's that's the nature of revolutionary change. You have users out there that value the thing as it is, and if you are not evolving it in contact with those users, then you're going to be in trouble. So the process itself really lends itself much more to uh, evolutionary change. Um, and also um, that onboarding, the, the process of getting into that core group, there's an onboard, an implicit onboarding there. It's not even explicit. Um, there's not a, a thing where you have to go through an onboarding. You are going through an onboarding when you get through those hoops. Um, and that is part of an enculturation thing that uh, really is taking on board the ideas of the project. Perhaps the project itself actually has the idea that it wants to be expansive. Um, 
that would be found out pretty quickly as part of that process. So I wonder if that makes the argument then that, I mean, if you want to say arguably the most quote unquote innovative stage of a project might be earlier on um, when everything is still really new and you're trying to lay the foundation, find your voice, find, you know, the kind of culture angle you want to take. Um, it makes more sense to have a BDFL style model early on um, when changes can be made more radically and more quickly by, say, one person um, and liberal contribution working better at in like this maturity stage of evolving things, but a little bit more slowly. Is that consistent with what you've seen? I, I don't think so. I, I think so. BDFL, I, for a start, I just, I, I really don't like the idea of BDFL. To me, it's, it's so, um, this idea that you can, um, you, you can take full ownership and, and be dictatorial, um, on a project that is valued by other people, um, often very deeply, um, I, I find really repulsive. Um, and so just in general, I, I, I just hate that model. Um, and, uh, often the, the, what happens in BDFL projects is that pre BDFL run projects and, and small group run projects, um, that are closed is that you'll end up with the people that are running the project, um, spending more time on the project than actually using it. Um, and, and that creates an inter interesting effect, which is that they become more detached from their users. Uh, and they might hear from their users via issues and pull requests, but if they, are, if they spend more time as a maintainer than as a user, um, then you've got a problem there. Um, and, and we have that in Node. We, have, we still have that problem in Node because we, many of us that work on Node Core, we do that as a job. Um, we spend a lot of time in there rather than being users of the project. So that's where the value of constantly having this intake of people who value the project enough that they're willing to put in time and effort to contribute to it. Those are the people that are the users that this, they're the people that this thing matters to. Um, and it might matter to you simply because you've got some history with it or you've become emotionally attached to it. But if it doesn't matter to you as a user of the project, then you're in a bit of trouble. Um, so back to the original question, uh, which is um, how early should you start this thing? I, I don't have a great answer for that because um, I, I've seen it work in different ways. Mostly um, new projects, new projects don't have a lot of buzz anyway. Like you, when you start a new project, um, it's, you know, it might, you might pick up a few interested people in your ideas, but you're hardly going to start off with something that, um, suddenly you have an influx of people wanting to contribute to your thing until you have something that is meaningful. So uh, I'm not sure that it makes sense to say this thing should be um, BDFL until it's ready because until it's ready, you're probably not going to have enough users that want to jump in and contribute anyway. Um, and if you have this idea of what is ready, and if that's obvious, um, then contributors are probably going to be on board with that anyway. And that's, I, I saw that with, with the, the level up. Uh, and the level DB ecosystem. That's exactly what happened. That it was obvious to people where this, what this thing needed to add in order to be what it was going to be. And that was a very small group initially and a very passionate group because they had a, a need and they saw that where this thing was going to fit. And so they contributed um, from the early stage. It was, it was open from early on. Um, and they contributed around that idea. And they really created that culture and they created the idea of where it should end up. Um, so I, I don't think that 
it might make sense for you to um, just hold something as closed source uh, while you get it ready to be open source. I mean, sure, to do that so that you don't um, necessarily, so you're not always throwing out projects that are not going to be finished. Um, and maybe you want to set something up so that it's obvious um, where it's going. That, that might be an important thing to do. Um, but I don't buy the argument that uh, something should be BDFL because it's still getting ready, uh, because getting ready is a, a special process in itself that, um, that, that people will attach to. Um, so in, in, with Node, we have now this, we, we, we're in a very distinct phase with Node, which is we're, we've gone past the phase of um, defining what this beast is. That, that, that happened. Um, you know, it happened all the way up to, I think, about zero, node zero 010. Um, that was a very much an evolving process of trying to figure out what the boundaries of this, this application, this platform were. Um, and we've, we've gone through that process. We have a very clear understanding of that now. Um, so we're very much in a phase of um, minor evolutionary incremental changes to improve things for the life of users. Um, we are filing off the rough, rough edges, and we're, we're basically in this maintenance mode, but it's still extremely active maintenance mode. We have a lot of contributions. We have a lot of work going on every single day, um, and, but it's all around um, this sort of perfecting this thing that already is defined. Um, and so that's, that's a very distinct phase for, nose, for Node, um, but I, I, think, I think Node still could have been developed early on from, um, from being much more open than it, than it was. Um, and it's still probably, it, it, it may have even got to a better place. I don't know. Um, I, I doubt it would have got to a worse place than it is now by being more open. Sounds like even if effectively there aren't that many people contributing early on, that's different from sort of like codifying the idea of a BDFL. Does that make sense? Of like, I think it sounds like you're suggesting that liberal contribution works from the very beginning. And just sort of like realistically, you're just not going to have as many people contributing when a project is super young um, and you'll just sort of like transition over time. That's different from saying like, I am the BDFL early on. Yeah. And, and I think that that's, that's right. And that brings up an important point, which I, I haven't touched on at all, which is the importance of leadership. Um, so it, it's nice to have this idea that um, you're going to have people show up and you're going to have this. Um, emergent property of leadership. It's just going to emerge out of the mass of, of people doing things. That's a nice idea. Um, and sometimes it works. Um, but very often you, you still need leadership and that leadership may be in the form of people putting in more effort than others. Um, and that, that's what happens early on in projects usually is you've either got uh, one person or a few people who are passionate enough about making this thing work that they're willing to put in that much time to get it there. Um, rarely do you have a lot of people doing that. You, you, it's very usually a small group or only one person. Um, and so that's what leadership looks like initially. Um, as a project evolves, um, you, you need somebody or p- some people to, be, to serve in that role of facilitating the community. Um, and that comes down to the fact that um, not everyone is a leader and we, we, we ought to be fine with that. That not everyone wants to be a leader, and not everyone is um, uh, has those natural skills to be a leader. Um, and and when you accept that, then you see that there's there's a place for individuals to step up and uh, and and to start being the grease in the wheels. Um, and that that can play out in really interesting ways. So it can play out by just the fact that somebody is stepping up. Um, very often. 
other people will be looking for that person and they'll be waiting for it. And then they step up and they start to, they might start to assert things. And, and other people involved in a project might, you know, they might say, phew, finally somebody's here to, um, to take that, that burden. Um, and we can disagree with them. Great. Like at least we've got someone to disagree with now. Um, <laughs> it's not, we're not just, we're not just um, sort of, we don't just have this little mess of, um, you know, people that, you know, are too timid to really assert things. Um, so having somebody stand up and start asserting um, can actually be a really valuable pe- thing and people look forward to it. Um, the other way that it can uh, manifest is, is simply in the, the respect that people get over time. Uh, and that's how leadership can evolve in these projects. That, and, and it evolves in open source in general. Um, you build up this, this capital of respect by your contributions and by um, what you know and what people know that you know. Um, and you see that in uh, in complex projects like Node, where there are people that like Node has a lot of different areas that are all very distinct, and there are different levels of expertise in different areas that are required to understand them. Um, and nobody, there's, there's there's zero people in uh, in Node in in the Node core project amongst that group of people that understand it all and that are uh, experts in it all. Um, everybody is an expert in one area or a few areas um, and nobody is an expert in all. And, and the way that um, this kind of leadership evolves in that, in that um, setting is that people build up the um, respect and the technical capital from other people that they know this area and that they are somebody to be listened to. So you might have – one of the most obvious ways that this plays out in Node actually is in uh, when you think about crypto. It's it's a really hard area for people to get across. Uh, very few people really understand it enough, and so uh, we have a few people that are really well respected in that area, and um, we will generally defer to them. Um, and often, you know, for for even the most trivial things, we'll we'll say we need sign off from these people, or these people are um, they need to be involved in this discussion in order for it to move forward. And then when those people in that that small group, and it might be just one person even. When they start proposing changes in their little area of expertise, they almost get a free pass because they um, they don't have people that uh, you know, everyone is everyone looks at them as um, a the leader in that area. Um, so that that plays out really interestingly in when you've got a complex enough project, but it also plays out in um, in smaller projects when you've got simply somebody who has the who has got obvious depth of technical knowledge and understanding about a project um, that they're generally recognized and they get to play that leadership role as well. So I think that there's a really interesting distinction here between um, entitlement and respect, right? Like the BDFL model is about entitlement. Like you are entitled to run this project indefinitely. And, and to some extent, when you have a small group that's closed off too, like I'm entitled to be the area owner of this. And it's not about anymore about just like other people respecting my expertise here. Um, and one of the interesting effects there is that you're only ever going to get more, like one person that's going to be the expert on that if you're allowing you know this entitlement to, to be there rather than respect. Like at one point in its history, Node did only have one crypto expert, and now there are two, right? And then they are both equally respected. Um, and I don't think that there ever would have been to or we would have gotten to if there was an area owner or an area dictator of that particular area, right? Right, and that that's exactly right, and it also that dynamic also impacts on people's willingness to be involved. Um, if, 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 if you have a process that says, 
um, you you have to respect this individual and their opinions um, simply because they are they're the person um, you know they're the, they're the BDFL. Um, you're you're actually less likely to get people to engage because a lot of people just they they're not going to submit to this idea that authority is granted rather than earned. It, it's and and particularly in the technical community, particularly in um, amongst engineers, um, if you've ever done any work with um, personality typing, um, you'll find that there's um, there, there are people that w- will accept authority simply because it exists. Uh, or because it's been granted, or because somebody just says so, um, that you have a uh, a monarch, and they've always been that way, and they should be respected. That's great. And then you have other people who are like, no, you have to earn my respect. You have to earn that place in authority before I'm willing to submit to that authority, and I'm willing to give you that respect. Um, and in in um, software engineering and engineering in general. Um, we're much more heavily weighted towards those kinds of personalities where people uh, are, they, they, you need to earn the respect. You need to earn your, your place in authority. Otherwise, um, you're just not going to get it automatically. People are not going to come down and automatically accept what you say. Um, and you can see that every day if you go to Hacker News, you'll see the same sort of dynamic happening where everyone's an expert um, and there's only a few people that um, really have earned enough trust of enough of our community to be able to say things and get a free pass for saying them without, um, you know, getting everything picked apart. Um, and that happens all the time in open source. Um, and if you have a BDFL that says this individual is the, uh, is the person that um, decides what goes and what's good enough um, and they haven't earned the respect or they aren't continually earning that respect, um, then you're going to have a huge breakdown in, in people's willingness to um, be involved. And, and also to, to use it as well. If people don't respect the people running a project, well, why would you use it? The continual part there is is the big distinction, I think. And this is also what I think a lot of people's problem with with meritocracy is, right? Is that meritocracy isn't about continued investment and and respect for that continued investment. Um, it's it's really just about setting a bar and then saying everybody who gets over this bar has a particular set of entitlement now, right? Right. Like right. Once once you're once you're in the club, you're in the club forever. Um, <laughs> that's like what, what meritocracy have become to mean in, in a lot of ways. Well, and, and we, to be honest, that's something we still, um, we're, we're struggling with. And you know this as well, Michael, that um, we have this process of onboarding people to these projects, but we don't have a good process for offboarding people. Um, and that's still something that we, are, that we need to explore. We need to have a way to say, okay, your time has passed. Um, you, you're no longer actively involved. Um, so maybe you don't deserve a seat at the table anymore. And, and this, this, this is a real challenge because we have... Uh, even now, situations where um, people are making decisions in Node. Um, Node is the obvious place because it's been around for a long time and it has these people that have, um, you know, earned their position but have sort of moved on. Um, but even now, you'll have people um, showing up and asserting themselves or even being involved in the decision-making process um, that are not actively involved in the day-to-day. Um, that uh, And there's a disconnect between that and the... Um, this process of those that do the work get to make the decisions. That's really what underlies um, open contribution um, governance is those that show up, those that put in time and effort are the ones that should be making the decisions about the project because they're the ones to whom the project is most valuable. Um, And so if you have people that um, you haven't effectively off-boarded but are still hanging around and asserting themselves. And that may be the original person or the original BDFL. And, I, and even in my, some of my projects, I've struggled with this because um, I have these 
ideas internalized about the project and I haven't even used it for a long time. And then to watch people, you know, have, having this its own community of collaborators um, evolve it in ways that I'm not comfortable with. Very difficult to not step in and say, um, no, that's just not in line with what this project should be. Having a way to offboard people from that, I think, is really important. And I, I don't think we've quite figured that out yet. Um, but we will. We'll, we'll get there because it's, it's an important step. In that vein, I'd like to hear a little bit about what you might think of um, some potential, not necessarily downsides, but just challenges of liberal contributions might be um, that are new or specific to liberal contributions. Well, one thing I touched on earlier on um, is this discussion-heavy culture. Uh, it's something that I, this is something I, I think about regularly, um, because and because I personally I enjoy it. I I like to engage in in vigorous discussion. I like discussion to be um, almost argumentative. Um, not, I mean, arg- argument for argument's sake is a bad thing, but discussion that is vigorous and is actually trying to find. Um, better outcomes, I find extremely invigorating because it means you are you're, you're working with other very capable people to perfect something um, that um, that one, uh, one individual couldn't do on their own. Um, and that's one of the that, to me that's one of the greatest things about uh, having a community of, of equals is that you can present something that you may think is great and then it goes through the process of working with other people and it becomes even greater because of you've got that extra input. So that's, that's a great thing, but it makes this process um, really discussion heavy. And um, that unfortunately is a barrier to a lot of people because a lot of people don't appreciate that. And um, for good reason, Some, sometimes it's just a personality thing. They don't want to have to engage in too much discussion, but often it's, um, it's simply a, a self-confidence or even maturity thing where um you show up and you put up your ideas, you know, you gently offer these ideas. Here's my suggestion for how things could go. And suddenly you've got uh, these people piling on, going through the process that they go through with every other change of trying to perfect something. And you've just, you've just put up something that you uh, feel very deeply about, or it's, it's, it might be, you might feel that it's a reflection of your own abilities or your own self in some way. And you've suddenly got people showing up telling you ways that it could be made better or changed or fixed or ways that it's no good. Um, and that is, that can be extremely intimidating um, and it can be very off-putting. So one of the prop challenges I think we have is in making sure that we are, um, we do this in a way that is welcoming even to those people. Um, and that, that, that's a challenge because it's not something that's easily um, codified into rules. And it's certainly not something that you can, that emerges out of the process because what emerges naturally out of the process is it raises up those individuals and those processes that encourage discussion and that, you know, the, the grinding away of ideas until they become their best selves. Um, and so that, that's, that's a really interesting challenge that I don't have great answers for, but, um, I think we will be uh, seeing a lot more um, thought put into um, as time goes on um, because it's a real one. And it, we don't want to marginalize people that don't fit into this natural mode um, that this thing is really well suited for. I think that there's also just a time commitment aspect to that, right? Like you're, you're valuing people that people's input that can, you know, assert themselves continually for quite a long time. Whereas people that are more casual or, or just don't want to put in all the work to read this giant thread, like they, they no longer can participate because of how this has gone. Right. 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 And I, and I often say that, um, 
this, these models are the, the, the best way that we have so far in connecting a project's governance with, its, with the users that value it the most um, because we can't go out there with open source. We, we don't have the ability to go out and survey all of our users because we don't know who they are. Um, we don't, it's not like a, a, um, a, a product from a company where you might have, um, you might have contact with every one of your users and you can actually go out there and ask them questions. Um, and so we can't involve our users that way directly with our open source projects. But what we can do is, is measure, is, is say, if, if you're showing up and you have a change to make, be it a bug fix, fix or an enhancement, um, then this thing is obviously important to you. So, so in my in my opinion, it's the best way that we have so far to connect a project with the people that value it the most. Um, unfortunately, uh, a lot of those people that do value the project um, don't have that time, as you said, to um, go through the process itself. And so, it may be extremely valuable to them, and there may be something about it that needs fixing. That may, they may have a bug or a a, a way that they're using the the project that is unique enough that no one else is picked up on the problem and they may present a solution um, but perhaps they're using it to uh, run a business and they don't have time to engage in this process um, and but their change is actually has merit it's just that it's um, it's not experienced by many other people so that they have to be the champion of that change and and when you're in that position that that's that can be that can suck really um, and so uh, I I, I I'd like us to find a way to um, make sure that we recognize those um, that input from outsiders that don't have the ability to engage in that same way. Um, but it's it's very difficult to find a way that I, I, I guess you 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 want to make sure that the project is um, still run by those who value it the most. You don't want to open up avenues for it to be run by people who um, just want to. Um, you know, show up with their ideas and, and turn it into something that they think it should be simply because it's their preference. You want it to be, you want it to be run by people who actually use it, who actually value it. Um, so, but doing, finding a way to make it inclusive enough, I guess, is the challenge. A good stopping point for us. Um, thanks, Rod, for talking to us about liberal contributions. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.